Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, last week we got to Pasuk, Perak Cafe, Pasuk Kaf Gimel, and we started, and we just, I think we actually covered the first Rashi on Bayoma Hashem La, Hashem spoke to her. So, Rivka is having this difficult pregnancy because the, uh, what, what is within her is the Yitrut Tzu Habanim Bekirbat, which Rashi explained in two different ways last week, but there was some struggle going on within her. And therefore she, Vatome Imkain, she said, Im so, if so, Lamaza Anochi, why this I, which Rashi explained is, why did I daven to become pregnant? And she went to inquire of Hashem. We talked about how Rashi says that means she went to see somebody, it turned out to be Shem, and that's learned from Batelech. She went to uh, do the inquiring. And continuing the same theme, Hashem replied to her through the agency of Shem. Hello. Hello. Uh, okay, I'm going to ask you to meet yourselves. Thank you. Now. What was the message that Hashem delivered to Rivka? And that's the content of Perak Kaf Gimel, Pasuk Kaf Gimel. After Vayom Hashem La, Shnei Goyim Bevitneich. There's two nations, or the Rashi's going to comment on that straight away, in your inside, in your womb, literally belly. Ushnei Le'umim, and two nations, Mimeayich Yiparedu, from within you will spread out. I think I'll leave Rashi to translate all this. Which, interestingly enough, Rashi doesn't comment on, but we'll get to it. So first thing Rashi says is on the word goyim. And he points out that there's a ketiv and kari here. It's read as goyim, but it's written as gimel yud yud mem. Which Rashi says is it's geyim ketiv. It's written as geyim. Kamo geyim. Now, that is to be understood as gayim with an aleph. So the ktiv, the way it's written in the Torah, doesn't have an aleph. But, says Rashi, the word gilul yud yud mem is either close enough or maybe he means it's equivalent to gimel aleph yud mem. Now, what is gimel aleph yud mem? What does that mean? What is gay? And it means somebody who's important or somebody who's high ranking. And it refers to, says Rashi, Elo Antinonius the rabbi the rebbe. This is Antoninus and Rabbi Uranasi. Shalom Pasku me al Shulchanam that did not remove from their tables lo tsanun velo chazeret, not radish and not lettuce. Lo bimot hachama velo bimot hagashamim. Not in the summer and not in the winter. Now, this comment of Rashi is quite remarkable. Um, I don't know if I can explain all the things that are remarkable about it, but let's have a go. So, first of all, just by the way, historically, who was Antininos, Antininus? Uh, and the truth is, we don't know, but it's possible he was the Roman emperor, Antininus the Pious, who succeeded Hadrian. The problem for that, he is the most likely candidate. He's got the right name. Um, the problem is the dates don't quite match because we're not sure when Rebbe was born, but if we say he was born around 135, maybe that's actually, that's, that's what Wikipedia said, but that's probably too late um, because 
he was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva, and he was an adult Talmud of Rabbi Akiva before Rabbi Akiva died. Rabbi Akiva died sometime around the Bar Kokhba time. Um, so maybe 135 is too late for him to be born. Maybe he was born earlier, which will work, because Antinonus died in 161. So we want, uh, to, we want Rebbe to be old enough to have a conversation with Antoninus. But Antoninus was generally considered a good guy. I don't know if there's any Roman documentary evidence that suggests that he was particularly favorable to the Jews or even that he had any contact with Yehuda Hanasi, who was the both political and scholastic leader of the Jewish people at the time in Eretz Israel. Um, but certainly the Jewish sources say that whoever Antoninus was, he had a good time with Rabbi uh, Yehuda Hanasi. Uh, and so it sort of fits that he might have been the Roman emperor. Or you might say that it's unlikely that Rabbi Yudhanasi would have had such a, a friendship with the big boss of all of the Roman Empire. And maybe this refers to Antoninus, who was some high ranking official, but not necessarily an emperor. Okay, next. Why is the fact that there is food in the case of Sunun and Chazeret uh, around the whole year on their tables? Why does that make them so special? So the obvious answer, and maybe it's a good enough answer, is they were very rich. Rabbi Yudhanasi, we know, was very, very wealthy. And Antoninus, uh, especially if he's the Roman Empire, is, is pretty, very wealthy. Sorry, I, I should have said clearly, obviously, Antoninus being Roman is a descendant of Edom, which is a descendant of Aesop. And Rabbi Yudhanasi is obviously a descendant of Yaakov. So this prophecy refers to a time when there will be two um, descendants, one from Aesop and one from Yaakov, who will be very rich which is still a little bit strange because it's not normally the attribute that we regard as so praiseworthy and something that Hashem was so keen to point out. So someone to go a little bit further. First of all, it doesn't necessarily mean that they ate the food themselves. Um, they ate these vegetables, which were usually hard to come by, but maybe they fed others with them and their, their tables literally doesn't say that they ate the food. It says they, these foods did not disappear me'al shulchanam. So someone to say perhaps that they fed other people. So they're not just rich, but they're also balei chesed, um, which fits with another thing, because the Gemara Ketubah says that when Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi died, he lifted up his 10 fingers to Hashem and he said, you know, Hashem, but with no, I have not taken any benefit from myself from Alam Hazer, from this world, to show that his hands were empty. So if that's the case, how can it be so special But he had all these lovely salad vegetables on his table? So again, you could answer that, as I said a moment ago, by saying this food was to feed others, not to feed himself. Or you can say that these vegetables, particularly in those days, were considered therapeutic and they were necessary for their health. Um, and so for Rabbi Yehuda Nasi to eat food, which keeps him strong and healthy, that's not called benefiting from Olam Hazer. That's necessary for him to do his Avodah Kodesh. Now, uh, there's something else I want to say, but I'll come back to that later. Let's carry on with Rashi. So, first of all, the Pasuk says there's the Shnei Goyim, which means Geyim Pavitnech, which we've seen, according to Rashi, referred to Antoninus and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasin. And then it says, Ushnei Laumim Mimaayich Yeparedu. What does Laumim mean? Says Rashi, Ein Laum Ela Malchut. The word la'um, which by the way in modern Hebrew means national, le'umi, um, it says Rashi, it means malchut. It's not just Rashi who says that, the Targum Onkelos translates it as malkvan uh, from the same word. So now we're talking not about individuals, but we're talking about the whole kingdom, the kingdom of 
the Jews, i.e. the descendants of Yaakov, and the kingdom of Esau, the descendants sorry, of Edom, the descendants of Esau. And these two kingdoms, from, from within you, will separate. Says Rashi, Min nifradim, So first thing to say is, even though Rashi says um, the word le'umim means malchut, it sounds like he's saying that the, the king, kingdoms are embodied by Yaakov and Esau. Because when he says, from within you, they are, now he puts nifradim in the present tense, whereas in the original Hebrew, it is yiparedu in the future tense. And that's significant. So he says what's happening is one is going to this direction, to evil, and one is going to tumor, which is uh, perfection or integrity or innocence. Um, the same word, ishtam, is going to be said of Yaakov in a couple of in time. So that's probably why he says tumo rather than sidkut or tov or something like that. But by taking the future in the Pasuk and translating it in the present, he is doing something, which means that the prophecy that Rivka is getting is answering her question. Because she goes, because of a yitratu habanim bakirba, and she says, why did I want to become pregnant? Because it's so painful. What's going on? And now Rashi says that these words, explain what's going on. And they fit with the famous Midrash that we brought last time, that Esau's trying to get out to Avodah Zorah, Yaakov's trying to get out to the Bet Midrash. This is what Rashi says here. They are already separated within you. And that's why I'm saying the significance of changing the future to the present. According to Rashi, this is not a prophecy about something that's going to happen generations down the line. It's referring to, it's explaining to Rivka what's happening now. They're already separating. And then he says, Mila'um ye'ematz. Now the full phrase is, Ula'um mila'um ye'ematz. So la'um is kingdom or kingship. Ye'ematz is to be strong, as in chazak ye'ematz. It says Rashi, lo yishvu bigdula they will not be equal in greatness. When this one rises, this one falls. And then he brings a Pasuk to prove that. So in Yechezko Peretavav, there's a prophecy which, as it were, is said by the city of Tzur, which we call Tyre, or some people call Tyre, which today is in Lebanon, which is identified by Rashi in the Gemara, actually, as a part of the Aesop Empire. I'm not quite sure the geography there because Edom was in the south. I'm not quite sure why Rashi says that Tyre in the north in Lebanon is part of Aesop's empire, but he does. Um, and therefore, the, the Pasuk, which uh, the, the words that Yechezko says about Tyre, Imala Hacharava, I will be filled from the ruins of referring to Jerusalem. So Tyre says, when Jerusalem's destroyed, I will become full which is an expression of this idea of um, when this one rises, that one will fall. And that, says Rashi, is one kingdom will be strong from the other kingdom. Uh, on a basic level, this, this phrase is enigmatic. What does it mean? And Rashi is telling us that it means one will be strong at the expense of the other. It can't mean that they will separate. They'll go in different directions. 
because that's already been said with the words um, so is something more about the relative greatness of each of the two kingdoms. One will be great when the other falls and vice versa. Um, at this point, let me go back to this business about Shnei Geim, which Rashi identifies as Antoninus and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Um, now, the question is asked, of all the characters in, if you like, the entirety of Jewish and Edomite history, are these the best example? What about David HaMelech and Shlomo on the one side and Hiram, the uh, king of Edom on the other side? There you have two very powerful forces. Um, and you can, what about Haman and Mordechai? Haman, the descendant of Esau, Mordechai is a descendant of Yaakov. There were many, many other individuals to choose. But, and this is only my idea, so I offer it to you for what it's worth. But I think maybe Rashi is reading the Pasuk as in three separate prophecies, if you like. First of all, there's Shnei Gayim, which is Shnei Gayim. And then there's another level where it says, so the Le'umim are going to separate. However, the Shnei Ge'im perhaps are not separating. The Shnei Ge'im are on the same level. So maybe what Rashi is doing is saying, we have to find an example of two leaders, one from Esau and one from uh, Yaakov, which were equal, which were not separating, were together. And where do we find a leader from Esau and a leader from Israel who are together? That's Rabbi Huda, Nasi, and Antoninus. That's perhaps the only example, or certainly the only example that stands out. So it seems to me that the first part, they're not separating. They're not going in different directions. Uh, and the second, then he goes on to say, then you've got Yaakov and Esau, who are going to go in different directions. And then the third level, in the future, one kingdom is going to grow at the expense of the other. So you've got three different levels, and the Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and Antoninus is stage one, which is different from stage two and stage three. And maybe those are the examples that he found. I also saw, and perhaps um, this is going in a very different direction, um, that Rivka is given this prophecy. And Rivka is told that there will be a time in history when you have Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and Antoninus, and they're getting on fine, and they're sharing their lettuce and their radish, and they're having discussions, as the Gemara says. But Rivka is told that sometimes it's going to be very hard to distinguish between Yaakov and Esau. Sometimes they're going to look very similar. They're going to be sort of on the same level. They're even going to be discussing philosophy together as Rebbe and Antoninus did. But you've still got to remember, one's Esau and one's Yaakov. And why is that relevant to Rivka? Because Rivka's got to see what Yitzchak does not about the true nature of Esau. Now, why couldn't Yitzhak see the true nature of Esau? I mean, there's, there's many, many ways of explaining the whole Yaakov, Esau, Rivka, Yitzhak story. But the simple idea is, and Rashi says, that Esau covered his tracks. Esau pretended to be a tzaddik when he's speaking to Yitzhak, and Yitzhak fell for it. Now, maybe there's other things that we can say, and we will when we get there, but that's the basic idea. But Rivka doesn't, because Rivka can see that even when Esau is looking like a tzaddik, he's not quite. And Rivka is the one who needs to bend the arc of Jewish history and ensure that the Bechorah goes to Yaakov and not to Esau because she can see what Esau is really like. So according to that idea, part of the prophecy, she's given the example, she's given the vision where you have Rebbe and Antonina sitting down chatting together and she's told, don't think they're equal. They're not. One's Yaakov, one's Esau, one's good, one's bad.
So you can look at this story of Antoninus Rabbi Huranasi as a wonderful pluralistic cosmopolitan idea that even the great rabbis sit down with the great Romans and they learn together. And by the way, the Gemara says, is the Gemara Midrash, I think it's Gemara, says Antoninus converted and became Jewish, which is quite a nice idea. There's no record of that in the Roman sources as far as I know. Uh, or you can read it as I'm now quoting to say that even when Antoninus looks like a nice guy, don't forget that he's from Aesop. Okay, it's interesting that Rashi doesn't say anything about the Rav Ya'avod Seir, because others do. And the Sephorno, for instance, says it's written in an interesting style because it's not clear who is serving whom. Uh, and without the et, which is used in classical Hebrew to identify the object, the word order is not sufficient because you could read it as the older will serve the younger or the older comma the younger will serve in Hebrew, they're equally natural because there isn't a strict word order of subject, verb, object. So it's left ambiguous and some want to say, but it's deliberately ambiguous because sometimes the older will serve the younger and sometimes the younger will serve the older. But Rashi doesn't go there at all. So I can only assume Rashi doesn't see it as uh, needing explanation. The older will serve the younger. Okay, let's move on to Posit Kaftalad. The Yimalua Yameha. No, let me just say something. I nearly forgot. I forgot last week. So I'm going out of order now, but it's something which is so beautiful I want to share, but it actually relates to last week and the week before. So we're going to take a pause and I'm going to say it now. So um, at the beginning of uh, Toldot, we have the phrase, Ve'eda Toldot Yitzchak ben Abraham, Abraham holidet Yitzchak. And Rashi talked about why we need the apparent duplication there. If Yitzchak is the son of Abraham, obviously Abraham holidet Yitzchak, Abraham begat Yitzchak. Says the Kliakar that you can read holid as Abraham caused Yitzchak to himself begat children. Now, and where do you see that Abraham caused Yitzchak to be the progenitor of children? So we also saw last week on the Pasuk Kaf Aleph, um, that Yitzchak davened to Hashem, and Rashi explained that both Yitzchak and Rivka were davening, but the Yeater lo Hashem, Hashem responded to Yitzchak's tefillah. And Rashi there said, because the prayer of a tzaddik, tzaddik of a tzaddik ben tzaddik is much more efficacious than the prayer of a tzaddik ben Russia. Even though we're not saying anything um, bad about being a tzaddik ben Russia, in fact, Rashi praises Rivka as triumphing over her family and local um, morals and being the tzaddikis, even though her family were not. But nevertheless, when it comes to davening, the zechut avot, the merit of one's righteous fathers, counts and helps one's tefillah. So Rashi says, Yitzchak's prayer was answered because of the zechut avot, because he was the tzaddik ben tzaddik, because of Avraham. It says to Kliakar very beautifully, this is Abraham holidet Yitzchak. Avraham caused Yitzchak to have children because it was the merit of Abraham that his tefillah was heard. Sorry, so sorry to go out of order, but that's such a nice idea. And I keep forgetting to say it, I wanted to say it. So we come to Pasuk Kaftalot. Her days were filled to give birth. And then it says, Behold, there were twins in her womb. Says Rashi, now, this Rashi is one of those that I call very helpful, where he spells out a question 
and then proceeds to answer it. And the question is like this, when it comes to Tamar, who was Tamar? Tamar was the one who had this slightly complicated relationship with Yehuda. Uh, but the end of the story is that they had children together. And in fact, they had twins together. And it says in Perak Lamadchet, Posekav Zion, Vayehi Be'et Lidata. It was at the time of her birth. Now, so why do we have the same description of the same gestational event, but said in two different ways? So by Tamar, Vayehi Be'et Lidata, and by Rivka, her days were full to give birth. So Rashi explains the difference is because in the case of Tamar, her days were not filled because she gave birth to her twins after seven months. But Rivka carried hers to full term and gave birth after nine months. Doesn't say explicitly, that Rivka, sorry, that Tamar gave birth early, but Rashi explains it, and he uses that, maybe it's the other way around, maybe because of a discrepancy, he says that, therefore, we can see that Tamar's pregnancy was not full term, but Rivka's was because the Pasuk says her days were filled. Uh, one can suggest in the case of Tamar, where both her children were considered righteous, um, there was no worry from Hashem's point of view about bringing them into the world early. But in the case of Rivka, where one of them was not a Sadiq, Hashem's in no hurry for him to enter the world, so there's no hurry for them to give birth early. And continues exactly the same theme with the next comment of Rashi on the next part of the Pasuk. The Hinei Tomim, that is Chaser. The word is missing a letter. Uba Tamar, it says Taumim, Malay, full. Now, before we see why one is chaser and one is full, why is one written without letters or letters missing and the other not, we have to understand which letter is missing. It might be worth actually turning to Perik Lamadchet Pasuk Kafzaim, because we're going to look something else there as well. So the word for twins is Taumim. Tof, Aleph, Vav, Mem, plural, Yud, Mem. And here we have two letters missing. There's no Aleph and there's no Mem. In fact, there's three letters missing. Um, no, sorry, two. There's no Aleph before the Vav and there's no Yud between the Mem and the Mem. So it would appear that Rashi isn't interested in the Aleph. He doesn't say there's two letters missing. And I, don't, I haven't checked every example in the Chumash because uh, I'm not that good, um, but it could be that the lack of an aleph is not considered a chisaron because you can't hear an aleph anyway. So tumim with an aleph and tumim without an aleph sounds exactly the same. However, yud, you do hear tumim. You hear the, the e rather of tumim. So if it's missing, like it is in our case, that is actually a chaser. That's actually a lack. So why is it written chaser here? And to prove that it shouldn't be written chaser, that we have a precedent elsewhere, which implies it should be written in full, we have Tamar. So Tamar, the Pasuk says to Umim, and here it says to Umim, or rather Tumim, but without the Yud. So it says Rashi, Uba Tamar to Umim Malay. By Tamar, the word is spelt in full. And the reason is, Lefi Shishanehem Sadikim. In her case, they were both Sadikim. Avalkan, 
אחד צדיק ואחד רשע. But here, in the case of Rivka, one was righteous and one was wicked. So you can read that as saying, well, because Aesop is wicked, he's like, doesn't really count to the same extent. So you haven't got two babies. You've got one and one with a bit missing. What's missing? His moral compass, if you like, is missing. And that's reflected in the chisaron of the word. But there's a bit of the word, a bit of the a letter missing. But perhaps you can go a little bit further. Because the essence of Tumi, meaning twins, is that the two are the same. So it doesn't have to be identical, but the idea of twins, whenever we talk about a twin this and a twin that, we talk about two things which are compatible. But here, in the case of Yitzhak, sorry, of, of Esau and Yaakov, they're not compatible. So perhaps you can say their twinness is itself deficient. So that's why the word for Tumim is spelt deficiently, because we haven't really got twins in the classic sense. There's one more thing I want to point out. So Rashi compares this Pasuk, Kafei Kafdalat, with the Tamar Pasuk, Lamed Chet Kafzayim. And Rashi's comment over there is quite similar to Rashi's comment over here, which we would expect because she, it's really the same question. The question in both cases is why is one different from the other? So the answer should be the same. And it's almost the same. If you look at Rashi on Lamed Chet Kafzayim, on the word to umim, says Rashi, that's Malay, that's full. Ulahalan, but earlier on it was Tomim, which was Chaser, which was lacking. Lefisha echad Rasha, because one is wicked. Aval Elu, but these, that's the two children of Tamar, Shnehem Sadikim. What's slightly different about the two comments of Rashi? Over there, when he's explaining about Tamar, he says one of the children of Rivka was a Russian. Over here, when he's explaining about Rivka, he said here with Rivka, one is righteous and one is wicked. So again, I didn't see this anywhere. This is just me for what it's worth. We know that Rashi is very, very precise. And if he changes a word or adds a word, there's a reason for it. Uh, and I haven't got anything very profound to say, but the point is over here with Tamar, the focus is on Tamar's children. The focus is not on Rivka's children. Rivka's children are only mentioned to the extent that they're different from Tamar's children. The, the, the Yaakov is not different from Tamar's children. Yaakov is a Sadiq, Tamar's children are Sadiq. The difference is that one of Rivka's children was a Russian. So Russia only mentions by Rivka's children in relation to Tamar's children, one was a Russian. Whereas over here in our Pasuk, he's talking about the children of Rivka, and that's the primary focus. And the children of Tamar are just to be there for comparison. So when he's focusing on the children of Rivka, he mentions both children of Rivka. Khan echad sadik echad rasha. Here one is righteous and one is wicked. Okay. Any questions, Happy? Good. Pasuk kaf hey. Uh, so we've now said they, uh, they've come to full term and behold, there are twins. And in her womb, so they haven't actually been born in Kafdalad, they're born in Kafe and Kafra. Vayetse Harisham, the first came out, Admoni, red, Kulo, Kaaderet Se'ar, all like a coat, cloak or coat or mantle of hair. Vayikra'u Shamo Asof, and they, interesting, called his name Asof. So what does Rashi say about all these descriptions? So first of all, Admoni, red. Siman hu shofech damim. This is a sign that he is going to spill blood. 
Now, speaking of somebody who used to be redheaded, and to my regret, uh, in my old age, I no longer appear so redheaded. In fact, I don't appear redheaded at all, but I used to be. Um, and so I wonder, why does Rashi say, what does it mean that a redheader is going to be a spiller of blood? Um, so perhaps the idea that the redness of the hair is the same as the redness of the blood. But it's worth pointing out that the blood that he's going to spill is other people's blood. So it's not as if he's going to be covered in his own blood, which would reflect his ruddy complexion. So why does his redness mean that other people's blood are going to be shed? So again, you could say simply uh, redheaded people are violent. Um, David was redheaded. He was a Tzaddik, but he was a man of war and he killed lots of people. Uh, I'm not quite sure how many other examples you can buy. I believe the Balshim Tov was redheaded. I don't think we say that he was in any way violent. Um, so you could just say redheaded, red complexion, violent. But I think um, we need to do a bit more than that, especially because it's a bit unfair on, on redheaded people. But what it could mean um, is that Aesop spills other people's blood because he's very self-centered and concerned about his own blood. And his own blood he regards as more worthy and more valuable than other people's blood. And that's why he spills their blood. So the redness refers to blood, but it refers to his own blood, not the blood that he spills. And it's the, the blood that he values above those of others. Now, why does Rashi say this at all? I think the answer to that is simple, because otherwise, why do we need to know about Aesop's hair color? We don't know about the hair color of basically anyone else in Tanakh, um, except David Amalek, as I mentioned, certainly not in Chumash, I'm pretty sure of that. We don't know what color Abraham's hair was or Yitzchak's hair or anybody's hair, but we're told it about um, Aesop. And by the way, I keep saying hair because we think today of redheaded. Uh, Admoni is more than that, I should say. It's, it's a general red complexion. Now, what's this Kulo Ka'aderet Se'ar? All of him like a coat of hair or a hairy coat. Says Rashi, Male Se'ar, it's full of hair. So Rashi adds the word Male because we don't have the word Malay in the Pasuk. So Ka'aderet Se'ar is a cloak which is full of hair. Katalit Shel Tsemer, it's like a cloak of wool, Hamalaya Se'ar, which is full of hair. And then Rashi gives a French word, which is spelt differently in different books. I've got Plokida, but I think in other ones you have Plokker or Plosher, um, which I've got a note here, which is not Rashi's words, which means a um, uh, weaving of wool, which is full of hair. Now, what's interesting is Rashi adds the wool. The Pasuk says it's a coat full of, uh, of hair, which Rashi explains means full of hair. But then Rashi adds it's katalit semer hamalea se'ar. So why does it need to be a like a cloak of wool, which is full of hair? Why can't we just say full of hair? So I think the answer is that Aesop was hairy. There was hair sticking out all over. Now, if you have a cloak of hair, if it's made like with horse's hair, um, that will be smooth. That won't be hairy. So something which is made out of hair is not hairy, but Yaakov, sorry, Aesop was hairy. So how can we get from a Kaderet Se'ar to him being covered in hair? And, and if you'll pardon all the uh, image, being hairy. So the answer is, so Rashi says, imagine not a garment made out of hair, 
but a garment made out of wool with lots of hairs attached to it or lots of hairs like loose or lots of hairs uncombed. So when you think of a garment made out of wool, then you can imagine something with hair sticking out on, in all directions. And that's what is, that's why Aesop is described as being like Deret Se'er, Se'ar. Um, it's like not just a garment made out of hair, but a garment made out of wool, which is full of hair. And then we say, Vayikra'u Shemo Aesop. And Rashi says, Hakol Karu Lo Kane. Everyone called him so. Why did they call him Esav? Lefisha haya naaser v'nigmar. He was fully made and he was complete. B'se'aro, in his hair. Keben shanim harbeh. Like a child of many years. So he came out of the womb as if he was like fully made. Fully covered in hair. And therefore, b'yikra'u, it wasn't Yitzchak or Rivka who called him Esav. That's explained by the plural. And as Rashi explains, who's the subject of Yikru? It's Hakol. Everyone would say, ah, that guy looks fully formed. That guy, he's just been born, but he looks like he's much older than that because he's all hairy. They, we call him Esav from the word Naaser, meaning to be made. So it wasn't Yitzchak giving him that name. And that's how Rashi explains the plural of a Yikru. And now we get to Pasuk Kafla. Yes. I see how Rashid answering the question of why speaker in the plural, but in saying everyone calls him that, I see how it's like to denote that there was some objectivity to his like appearance that everyone thought he looked like that, but as opposed to what, like only one or a few people called him Aesop, and he had like having another I mean, thing. when he, when Rashi says Hakol, I don't know if it means every person on earth right. called him that. It might just be, you know, that was what the general populace sort of came up with. Um, but I, I think the crucial point is, A, it's plural, and B, it's not Yitzchak or Rivka. Yeah. Um, so it was a name, it, and I think also perhaps Rashi's making the point, I mean, having been forced to explain who is the subject of Yitzchak, he says, look at the name Aesop. It, it's, it's very, very descriptive. It's very descriptive of what he is. It's not about a name. It's not named after his grandfather or anything like that, even though we didn't do that in Tanakh. It's not a name about the uh, moment of his birth or something happened when his pregnancy was announced, like in the case of Yitzchak. Um, uh, it hasn't got a significance like Yaakov has, which we'll see in a minute, uh, and one's perhaps being contrasted with the other. It was a stun. It was an obvious appellation that people picked up. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's how I see Rashi. Uh, I think the point I just said, that it compares to the reason that Yaakov was called Yaakov, um, which is given for a particular reason. So Rashi, I think, wants to equate them by saying Aesop is also for a particular reason, and I, Rashi, will tell you what that is. Right. Well, I wonder even with Yaakov, like, although he was named that initially, it's not the name he kept his entire... I mean, he did keep it. Well, yes. an additional name. Okay. Well, anyway, when we get to the name of Yaakov very soon, maybe not this week, maybe, um, we'll see. We'll talk about it then. But, says Rashi, and after this, his brother came out. And his hand was holding onto the heel Aesop of Aesop. And then it says, which we'll talk about when we get there. And then it says, And Yitzchak was 60 years old when they were born or when at the birth of them. 
So there's a lot in this verse because Rashi has a lot to say. And he starts by saying on the words, Shemati Midrash Agada, I have heard a Midrash Agada, a narrative Midrash, which expounds it according to the simple meaning. Now, it's commented that it's, it's strange for Rashi to say, I have heard a Midrash Agada, when what he's going to quote is directly from Midrash Rabbah. So normally when he quotes Midrash Rabbah, he says, here's the quote, brackets, it's from Midrash Rabbah. It's a bit strange to say Shemati Midrash Agada. So there's two possibilities to explain this. One is to say that this is not Rashi speaking, that this is a scriptural error, um, uh, sorry, a scribal error. Um, and there is some basis for saying that because this bit doesn't appear in all the original manuscripts. Or Rashi is referring not to the main body of what he's going to quote, but to the last bit, which we'll get to. Um, and it could be when he says, Shemati Midrash Agada, that um, you can look in the Bereshit Rabbah and you can find most of it, but the last bit I've heard somewhere else. Okay, but what is this Midrash that he's going to say? And it's like this. Bedin haya ochez bo la'akvo. By rights, by according to the din, he, Yaakov, held him, Esau, by the heel. Why? Yaakov notza mitipa rishona, the Esau min hashnia. So when Yaakov and Esau were conceived, Rashi, with his perhaps, let's say, unique understanding of what goes on in the womb, says that Yaakov was formed from the first drop that entered the womb, and Aesop from the second drop. How come? What, what's going on? Say ulamat mi shapiha katsara. Come and learn from a tube with a narrow opening. Tain ba shte avanim zu zu. Put into it two stones. So you put them from the top, and the one goes on top under the other. Hanichneset rishona teitse achrona. So imagine like a straw or a tube sealed at one end. You put in a stone, call that stone one. You put in the second stone, that's stone two. You then tip them out so they come out. Stones two will come out first, even though stone one went in first. So as I say, I think our understanding of how um, the embryo can settle in the womb and which will, if in the case of twins, which embryo comes out first is not the same as Rashi's understanding, but let's leave it at that. So the one that went in first will come out last. And the one that went in last will come out first. So Aesop is born first. So it turns out Aesop must have been formed last. If he's the first baby to come out the narrow tube, then he was the second drop of seed to go in. Um, and that's why Yatsa Rishon. Aesop Hanotzab Achrona Yatsa Rishon. Aesop, who was formed last, came out first. For Yaakov, Shanolat Rishonotzar Rishona. And Yaakov, who was formed first, Yatsa Achron, came out last. And therefore, the Yaakov Bala Akvo, Yaakov came to hold him back. Shiahe Rishon Laleda. That Yaakov, therefore, should be the first to be born, Ker Rishon just as he was the first to be formed. But Yifta et Rachma, and he wants to open the womb, i.e., to be the first one out, min 
and therefore take the firstborn Jew, which is owing to him, Minadin, because he was the first to be formed. So a few things to say. First thing to say is, why does Rashi say this at all? And Rashi is perhaps answering two questions with this story. One is, why was Yaakov holding on to the heel of Esau? Um, obviously, that is significant, because otherwise the Torah wouldn't have told us. It doesn't tell us who had a breech birth and who came out this way and who came out that way. So why does it tell us that he's holding on to the heel of Esau? So we're going to see that it's quite, um, it, it's prophetic about something that's going to happen to the relationship, future generations between Yaakov and Esau. But clearly, it's significant. Um, so that's, if you like, question number two. But question number one is, I think, stronger than that. Pasuk Kafhe says, harishon. So what should Pasuk Kafvav say? If you look at Bereshit, Perak Aleph, Pasuk A, Rashi makes a similar observation. Um, on the words, what should it be? Yom Rishon, because we later have Yom Shani, Yom Shalishi, Yom Ravi. So the first day should be Yom Rishon. So why is it Yom Echad? So Rashi answers that in Perak Aleph Pasuk Hei. It says, According to the order of the parasha, of the language of the parasha, it should have said Yom Rishon. And why does it say Echad? So he answers that. So perhaps, although he doesn't say it, he's bothered by the same thing here. The first one is Rishon. The second one should be Shani. But why isn't it Shani? Because he really should have been Rishon. And the second point is, why is he holding on to Esau's heel? Because Esau shares two sons. Shema Echad and Shema Echad. Yes. I think perhaps it's easier to say Shem Echad V'Shem Echad than yeah. to say Shem Echad V'Shem Achiv or something yeah, like that. Because yeah. Echad can mean this one and that one. Yeah, um, Yeah. if Echad and Sheini, that would be problematic because it should be Rishon and Sheini. Echad and yeah. Echad is not so uh, obviously yeah. wrong. But here, Rishon and Achiv, that seems to cry out for Sheini. Mm. Now, there's another problem with Rashi's story. Um, one is perhaps because from an embryonic point of view, it's not our understanding of how uh, it works. But the other is um, we, the concept of peterechem, of the literally the opener of the womb, applies in all sorts of cases, um, or particularly by humans. Um, and the child that opens the womb needs a pigeon of them under some circumstances. And an animal, a kosher animal, which is if the firstborn male um, is the opening of the womb that becomes a bachora and has to be, it's got kadusha and it's treated in a certain way. And nowhere do we say that if there's twins, the one who comes out second in any sense is really the first. In every case, by the way, including this one ultimately, the one that comes out first is considered the firstborn. And we nowhere do we say the one who was came out second was conceived first, so that gives him some sort of primary right. But you could say that it's not about the Bechorah in the strict halachic sense that we come to know after Harasinai, but the fact that Yaakov's neshama was created first, as explained by the marshal that Rashi brings, should have given him some preference. So even though in terms of the mitzvah of Pijinah Ben, etc., we know that it's the one that comes out first. And it's nothing to do with the one who's conceived first. 
Nevertheless, on the level of Yaakov and Esav and the argument they were having, and who is the most fitting to serve Hashem through the Avoda, which according to Rashi is what the argument about the birthright was all about, you could say that Yaakov, as the first neshama to be formed, had some claim to it. Then he says, but Akev Esav, so now he's explaining Akev Esav in a slightly different way. They're not mutually exclusive, which is fortunate, because he doesn't say, he doesn't say this is a different explanation. So what I would call the first explanation is Yaakov holds onto his, the heel of Esav, because he doesn't want Esav to get out first. But he or actually also says, but Akev Esav, Siman, she'ein zeh maspik ligmor malchalto, ad she'zeh omed v'not la himeno. This is a sign that this one will not have literally enough to complete his kingship until the other one will come and take it from him. What's this? How does he explain the heel? Because the heel is almost the end of the person. So Esau is nearly fully born, and then Yaakov grabs him by the heel. And this is the simmer that Klag Yisrael will nearly at the end of Malchut Edom take away the kingship from Edom by grabbing at Edom's heel, i.e. at the end of Edom. So that's why he holds the heel. It has a much more long-term prophetic significance. And again, um, I'm not quite, I haven't got a very good answer why Rashi adds this in addition to what he's already said about, about Akev Akevesa, except to say that Rashi obviously feels that the Torah mentions it because it's significant. Now, by the way, when did the Jews bring about the end of the kingdom of Edom. So there's two answers to this, which one of which I think gives some very interesting and thought-provoking um, implications. The first answer is David Amelach conquered Edom, and that's what it's referring to. Um, so Edom was there as a kingdom, and then Edom didn't survive as a kingdom because David Amelach, on behalf of the Jews, on behalf of Yaakov, conquered it. But we also know that the idea of the four kingdoms um, of Babylon and Persia and Yavon and Rome um, is the idea that those four kingdoms applied during the Chorban Bayat Rishon and up to and including today. And we are still living in the descendants of the Roman Empire and Rome is identified with Edom. So the second understanding of when Edom ruled is up to and including today because we're still having the after effects of the Roman Empire. But we're told that the time will come when at the end of Edom's ascent, Yaakov will grab him by the heel and cause the end. And last week we had Yom Hatzmut, and we can only hope, and maybe we can be confident that we are living in a time when the Jewish people are creating their own destiny again, and they are recapturing Eretz Israel and ending the rule of Edom and now is the moment when Yaakov is grasping, grasping Edom by the heel. It's actually happening right now, which is quite exciting. Okay, then continues the positive. There's so much in this positive. So what is the, who is the subject of Vayikra? Now here's the problem. Um, we always say pronouns are a problem. Pronouns give the Parshanim a job to do. Because whenever you have a pronoun, the question is, to whom does it refer? Now, normally, in English and by default in Hebrew, it refers to the last subject mentioned specifically. So when it says, Yaakov, who is the last subject? Well, the problem is, 
might be Esav, uh, which obviously doesn't make sense. So obviously it doesn't mean Esav, the newborn, calls his brother Yaakov. But who is it? It's not clear. There's no, no um, suitable subject has been mentioned for many, many verses. So that's why Rashi says, I'll give you two possibilities. And the first is HaKadosh Baruch It's Hashem called him Yaakov. And then we have a phrase, which in my book is in brackets, um, uh, which implies that it's not uh, actually Rashi's words. And I think in most texts, it's considered not to be Rashi's words, but we'll read it anyway. Amar, he, that's Hashem, said, Atem karitun livchorechem, shame. You called your firstborns a name. I will call um, my firstborn by its name. And that's why it writes, He, Hashem, called his name Yaakov. So that bit in brackets, which probably isn't Rashi, is saying you, now it's not quite clear whom he's referring to, because Rashi just said that, that everyone called Esau by the name of Esau. So you, referring to those who named Esau, Esau, you called the firstborn, your firstborn, as far as you're concerned, is Esau. But my firstborn, Bani Bechori Yisrael, is Yaakov, so I, Hashem, will call my firstborn Yaakov, which it sort of sets us up for what's going to be the dominant theme for quite a long time, that Esau thinks he's the firstborn, but really Hashem has other ideas. Yaakov is the firstborn. Now, by the way, according to up to this point, and before we get to the alternative explanation, it's worth noting that Yitzchak doesn't name either of his children, which is a bit surprising. Um, it's normally the schut of the parents to choose the name for their child. So in case of Esau, he was named by the people around him. And in the case of Yaakov, he, according to this, was named by Akadosh Baruch neither of whom were named by Yitzchak or Rivka. And it could be, I saw a beautiful idea, that if you say, and this is in doubt, that Rivka shared the prophecy with Yitzchak, <coughs> that means both of them knew that they would have two children, one good and one bad, but they didn't know which was which. And as we will see, it won't be this week, but we'll see next time in the next verse, while they were growing up, there was no indication which one was the Tzaddik and which one was the Russian. So it could, it could be that Yitzchak didn't want to take a, take a risk of giving the wrong name to the wrong child. So he named me the child. But Rashi also brings the Ba'acher, another explanation. Aviv Karolo Yaakov, al shame Achizat Ha'ekel. It was his father who called him Yaakov because of the holding of the heel. So um, the problem that Rashi's answering with each of his two explanations, and I'm sorry, I haven't come with a nice explanation of why you need both. I, I haven't got that one today. Um, but certainly the question arises because it's not clear who is the subject of Vayikra? Um, you might sort of naturally think that Yitzchak is the one who's doing the naming of the children. But in terms of the grammar, Yitzchak um, was last mentioned in Pasuk Kaf Aleph. So it's hard to say that Yitzchak's named in Kaf Aleph and in Kaf Vav, he becomes the subject of Vayikra. Okay, we've just got time to finish the verse because then Rashi's got to explain Ben Shishim Shana, that Yitzchak was 60 years old when the children were born. Uh, and I think Rashi's answering two questions here. Number one, why does the Torah need to spell that out? We're not told the name of every father when every child is born. And number two, why is Yitzchak so old? 
Um, let's see what we mean. Ben Shishim Shana. Eser Shanim, Mishanisa, there's 10 years from when he married her. Now we know from Rashi, and we learned this last week, that Rashi says that Rivka, he's famous for saying this, that Rivka was three when they got married. Other Mephoshim say she was older, but Rashi says she, explicitly she was three. So says Rashi here, Eser Shanim, Mishanisa, Adshana, Aset, Bat, Shalosh Esrei, Shana, Uruuya, he waited 10 years until she's 13 and able to become pregnant. Um, for the sake of the listening on the podcast, my uh, student here is uh, making a face because she thinks 13 is a bit young to have a baby. But uh, biologically, it is possible for her to become pregnant at 13. And it has happened. And it has happened. It's happened um, sometimes successfully. I'm not suggesting it's uh, ideal. Um, but certainly, um, in ancient times, um, girls did get married younger, and uh, they sometimes gave birth younger. I just want to point out, I mentioned this last week, but it's worth mentioning it again. Um, I think you can see from Rashi's words, there's no suggestion whatsoever that Yitzchak and Rivka had relations when she was three. Um, three is the age by which she can get married, but there's no suggestion whatsoever, but that's the time that the marriage is consummated. And in this case, it says clearly, they waited until she was 13, which is when she was able to become pregnant and has that degree of maturity. But then the Eser Shanim Halalu, these 10 years, um, are, they might, that word Halalu might, might not be the correct word. Uh, it makes more sense to be the second 10 years. But anyway, these 10 years from um, 13 to 23, Sipa, she, uh, he waited for him Tim La. Uh, sorry, he like, was, was looking forward and he waited for her, as his father did for Sarah. Because we know that the passage says quite clearly, so I haven't got the reference right here, but when Sarah offered Abraham Hagar, um, that was after they had waited 10 years before uh, and concluding, as it were, that they weren't going to have children. Although that's not a source for waiting 10 years um, that every marriage that hasn't produced children after 10 years needs to have somebody else come in as a surrogate because the Pasuk actually says, after 10 years of residing in Eretz Israel, Abraham and Sarah have been married for a lot longer than that, but the clock of the 10 years only started when they arrived in Eretz Israel. But anyway, so I should have pointed out that we were told explicitly that uh, um, Yitzchak was 40 years old when he married Rivka. That was in Perek Hafei Pasuk Kaf. And now we're told explicitly that he's 60. So it's obvious they've waited 20 years from the time of the marriage until the children are born. So Rashi is explaining where did these 20 years come from? 10 years until she's fitting to become pregnant. And then 10 years when he waits and waits and nothing happens. And there's a precedent for waiting 10 years because that's what his father did. But then it says, Kavon Shalonit Abra, when she didn't conceive, yada shehi akara. After 10 years, he knew that she was barren. And that's when he davened for her. Now, um, what Rashi is explaining is, it's, it's, it, until this point, it's not clear exactly the chronology that goes on here uh, in the beginning or the beginning of the Sedra. In Pasuk Kaf, he marries her. And in Pasuk Kaf Aleph, they daven, but they will have children. And in Pazakal Bet, she becomes, or Pazakal Bet, she conceives, and then she's going to have uh, twins. 
So where's the 20 years? So Rashi explains that they didn't start davening until they knew that something was needing davening. Um, and that was after 10 years. Um, the first 10 years don't count because she couldn't become pregnant anyway. But the second 10 years is what they waited for. And then they davened. And the time is uh, now to end the year. And there's a couple of lines left, but we'll have to do them next week. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.